welcome you to our Disney at Work podcast and appreciate you taking the time to listen to us today. We are here with our fourth installment of our Tom Morris set of interviews. We had uh, three earlier, one with Tom uh, talking about his journey into imagination days, followed by his Disneyland years, and then finally his experience at Disneyland Paris. And then we got interrupted by a little thing called Rise of the Resistance, which opened up and which brought uh, a need to share an amazing review with you. I hope you've had a chance to capture it as well as the previous Tom Morris interviews. So uh, having gone through all that, we're ready. We are so ready to actually bring to you our final and fourth installment of this interview with Tom. Uh, this is an opportunity to talk to Tom about his experience with Hong Kong Disneyland, as well as some of the things that he's working on right now. So um, sit back, relax, and remember you can also refer to our notes page at disneyatwork.com where we'll share with you uh, some of the uh, key concepts, ideas, photos of things, links uh, to uh, some of the things that we'll be talking about during this podcast. So with further, with no further ado, let's, uh, let's hear again from Tom Morris. So most podcasts um, fall out before we get really into Hong Kong, and I, I want to make sure we carve a little bit of time for Hong Kong. What was your role primarily there? Well, I think one day Marty came to me and just said, um, you're going to work on Hong Kong now. And um, I was finishing up the preliminary work on the second gate for Paris which was a challenging project and it yeah. was um, always underfunded and came at a time in the company, at a low point in the company where they didn't want to see anything themed anymore. I mean, it was like a bad word. So um, at least with Hong Kong, it was like, it's going to be a very small Disneyland and it has to have all of kind of the essence of, you know, Disneyland. And um, it too came with a rather small budget but um, but also you know it, it was imperative that it be perceived as a Disneyland and because um, they had been calling it different names you know Disney's magical something or other this is before I came on board yeah and so at some point a decision was made no it's going to be a Disneyland it might be a small Disneyland but it's gonna be a Disneyland and then they changed and I don't know why to this day, um, you know, they moved a bunch of people around. So they moved the people that were working on that off onto other things, and they moved me off of Paris onto, onto Hong Kong. And so it was, it was easy and it wasn't easy. It, it, you know, it was like, okay, well, we're not inventing anything new with this. Not that all Yeah, no. And, you know, I would have liked to have come up with a new castle for it, because um, I believe that every park needs to have a unique castle. It's, uh, yeah, it's going for a shadow experience yeah. of being reinvented. Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I worked with John DeSantis on that. And then Tim Delaney was brought on board to do Tomorrowland. Um, Tomorrowland. I don't think I even designed any. I might have designed some random things here and there, but it was really... Um, a management role <laughs> almost yeah. of supervising um, 
Kelly Ford, who was the art director for Main Street, and Lori Coltrane, who had Fantasyland, and Skip Lang, who had um, Adventureland, and Tim, who had Tomorrowland. So once again, we had kind of the best people you could get for the respective lands. And then I was the face of all of that that had to go in and ask for more money twice, as we did, to, to Paul Pressler, no less. And he gave it to us. <laughs> he gave yes. it to us. And now, it, you know, that, that, I look back that, at that, that and I go, should, should, should have I asked for much more? <laughs> you know, I, I think we went in there with a reasonable request and, and, you actually got and it. we actually got it. That, that <laughs> actually may be uh, the ultimate tribute that you got it. But uh, the, um, but the, he didn't buy get, putting a new castle, and yeah. nor, nor did Martin. And I don't know why that was like something that was like uh, early an early thing, just like on Disneyland Paris. Except I wasn't able to change it. You know, like you cannot. We're not doing anything with the castle. We're going to use the Disneyland castle, and it's going to be like you know we're going to use that in the as part of the publicity that this is Walt's original castle. But you really went in with with some several hands tied, not only on the. And on the castle thing, you were one land short of yes. what is usually... Yes. You were no pirates, no right. mansion, right. no small, small world. world at that yeah. time, which are quintessential. Yeah. If you're going to do a Disney park, right. you got to have it. Right. So yeah. you had... And, and not... And, and barely a dark ride to your Right, name. right, right. Um, so you really came in with your hands very tight. Yes. What, what were you most proud of? Just, <laughs> other than just managing to get the open as much <laughs> yeah. as you had. Yeah, surviving... So you, um, well, it, you know, as it came together, it, it was beautiful. You know, it was really, uh, I just remember walking through it at night as the lights got finished up and the lights were so pretty in all the different areas. Um, and, you know, I can tell you it was much, it, it may not have been Disneyland Paris, but, um, and it wasn't the size or the magnitude of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, but it was, it was one of the prettiest parks um, to walk through what was there, you know, what was there, the the um, the trees and everything had already matured. So, well, the, the landscaping wise, you, you can't you can't find a prettier park. No the landscaping. I mean, unfortunately, you have to you have to sweat it out to see it, right? <laughs> because the yes. humidity is so uh, I know. And over that's, the top. That's but why the plants are so, so beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it is so stunningly beautiful. The adventure land. Because that's and where it's tropical. That so garden, many fantasy of, gardens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. so beautiful. Yeah, that's where we, um, you know, for Walt Disney World and Disneyland Paris get so much of the tropical material is from Southeast Asia and from an island called Hainan, 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 uh, which is the largest Chinese island off the uh, southeast side. Uh And um, so I think we had already been getting material from, from there. And now it was just a hop, skip and a jump away from, um, from Hong Kong Disneyland so that, you know, we didn't hardly have to even pay for shipping. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was, the, the plant material was incredible. You know, all of the crafts were probably um, at their, you know, highest level at that time. The, the craft of landscape, the craft of themed lighting, the craft of show lighting, the craft of graphics, the craft of music. Um, architecture but we just didn't get that fifth land and we didn't get you know in my opinion the e-tickets eventually you know of yeah. course they got there other than space yeah uh, and, and jungle Cruise. so but space wasn't even originally part of it so so uh, you had to beg for that yeah yeah so take me 
take me there right now, if I beamed you to one specific physical location right now in Hong Kong that just brings you the best, the most joy, what is that, what is that physical store, <laughs> attraction, garden, what is, where is I like it that the, you uh, just love to be? Well, like the Tahitian Terrace area is really beautiful. Uh, at the entrance to Adventureland and yes. across from that um, now I have forgotten the name of the restaurant across from it it's been so long the Jungle Cruise um, the dock is over there the Leaky Tiki's um, this whole kind of route that you can take from the Tahitian Terrace along the river along the river up towards Fantasyland and the lights are beautiful at night along there there's a drum circle and um, so I think that grew into being my favorite um, area there. Yeah, let me add that to that compliment, uh, add a compliment to that. One of my favorite things in the earlier days of Disneyland, pre-Fantasmic, right. was going along the rivers of America. Right. Um, you know, from the Pancake House to, yeah. to Bear Country. Um, I find that same feeling as you go along the yeah. river there and you see the, the rafts heading toward yeah. Tarzan's Treehouse and the right. Jungle Crew—it's just a—it's just a lovely, right. lovely little piece right through there. That um, I love your—I love the train. Yeah, that little—that yeah. train is just a gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Gorgeous piece. And the Jungle Cruises actually came out pretty good. Oh, you know, your finale. And that was so um, great. And Skip came—you know—Skip really came up with that finale. We knew we had to do something different. Um, and big somewhere along the um, along the route there to give you a big memorable oh you got to see you know this sort of thing um, so as opposed to a Trader Sam here yeah <laughs> right as two, right as opposed to a two well, for one, one thing, special <laughs> one thing and I think like uh, Tim Delaney and Skip and myself were always said you know when you do a ride a big ride make sure that when people come back into the station they're laughing or have some, you know, on their emotional high. You know, yeah. So that's, you know, you could say that is maybe a weak point about the original Disneyland attractions, as great as they are. As the great as they are. You know, they're kind of like, they're, you know, they, pirates, you well, go up the lift. You know, it doesn't bother me, the lift, but, the, you know, it does need some little And not only thing the punch the of the of finale, but right. then you have the little squirt elephant right there right, at the right, end right. that just is exactly. that little extra exactly. end of credit piece. Yeah, that, yep. That's so great. Yeah. I, I also mentioned I love the Merlin shop yes. that I believe services the exit to Filler Magic. Yes. The whole scroll of, you know, and I can never remember his, his uh, oh, magic Higginus spell. Figginus? Yeah, yeah Higginus Figginus. I just right. I love that whole layout there. and There's some really wonderful gems. Um, yeah, that. yeah, yeah, and, uh, and Tim um, Delaney, Tim Delaney, Tomorrowland at night is right, but in the uh, day, you know, every every Tomorrowland looks pretty good in the at night, but yeah, but during the day, it, it had to look it like had a great, you know, it was you were on another planet. I mean, I think that was the first time we had taken that approach of you're on a maybe you're on a on a satellite or on a you know a planetoid or you know. Um, and this is a base, you know, uh, of, you know, aircraft, rocket ships, etc., coming in, coming and going, basically. So the buildings all look like they could kind of fly away or fold up and fly away. Yeah. And so I think that came off pretty good. And the little uh, water play area that I don't think is there anymore um, initially, that was great. The Space Mountain, uh, 
was wonderful. And um, oh, I remember the one thing that I kind of micromanaged a little bit. Um, you could sort of say I designed it, but really the designer was Deborah Gregory, and then um, Steve Wilson had the, um, I think, had a big part of it too, especially in the field. But the idea of it was the Chinese restaurant inside of the plaza. Sure. Yeah. Uh, on the on the right is your first castle. Left. But it's the. Uh, it's it's in. Oh yes. The, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. 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 Yes. Yes. The one that looks like plaza. Pavilion. Pavilion. Right. As opposed to yeah, the one on the right. right we call is, it the Plaza Inn, <laughs> but but it's the Plaza Pavilion, and it's the Plaza Pavilion on the outside. But it's um, kind of a turn of the century. Chinese dream on the inside. Yes. It's east meets west, really. Um, it's what you would actually kind of find in, um, well, you'd find it in Shanghai, and then you'd find it in San Francisco at the turn of the century. So there's an influence of both cultures that kind of... East meets west. Come, yeah, it's totally east meets west. But, you know, beautiful, beautiful that is lanterns. Yeah, and the lanterns changing color and the stained glass elements in there and then bringing in the Mulan. Even the poster art on that restaurant. It's, it's the it's, production art from, really uh, great. from Mulan, the, the murals. Is that what you're talking about? No, or I the, meant oh, the, the poster. poster. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For that. Right. Even, even yes. the attraction poster. Yeah, the poster came out great. Um, the music I selected, which was a, a fusion of... Uh, Actually, everything that's in there is either a Western melody played with Chinese instruments, or a or vice versa, Chinese melody played uh, Western style. So um, next time you're in there, <laughs> you talked Listen. about you talked earlier about uh, left and right brains coming together. You can do both. One of the challenges creatives have is having to take off a little bit of their creative hat and putting on the managerial hat. Right. And in this case, you had to play that role. Yeah, probably what not did you as, learn? What did you probably learn? not as well as I could have or should have. <laughs> but what did you learn from that? Uh, to um, let go a little bit. You know, I mean, it, you know, I, I think there was a, initially I probably had just a um, muscle memory um you know, need or uh, reaction, impulse. yeah, mm -hmm. impulse to to want to design everything or you know micromanage everything and and manage every detail, and of course you can't and it, and shouldn't you know and um, so that would lead me to sometimes either be indecisive or cranky, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was probably crankier than I needed to be on several occasions and I was a little probably a little more confrontational with um, the operational side of the house um, well that's honest that's that's yeah. hard especially yeah. when you're also dealing with the cultural right. aspect as well right you're, you're going to a new place right and you know so um, yeah I and it, well yeah I could probably write a book about all the things I learned and and the challenges and frustrations of that particular job uh, it, there were some aspects of it that were just really really tough and I had a hard time um, biting my tongue and keeping my mouth shut sometimes when I probably could have or should have just you know wrote it out and not gotten you know so wound up about certain things <laughs> so your journey 
yeah. it's been one of learning and yeah. yep. growth, and yeah. that's okay. Because you don't know that until kind of you um, rest afterwards. You know, you get you yeah, have that, that reflection. Like, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I I realized that I think the summer that I came or the whenever it was I came back, and um, you know, it's like okay. Of course, management was continually shifting during this whole time too. Oh, and that, that big shift. Um, yeah, and that you know made things difficult too. And we didn't always have people um, who were experienced in their particular field uh, running things. So there was you know education on my part, but there was education on their part, and it always you know there's always these paradoxes of questions that you have like when am I when am I overthinking something versus when am I underthinking? With with management, it's like when when are they trusting too much and when are they not trusting too much? Yeah. What is being told or what's being reported um, to them? And so we all have these paradoxes that we have to think about daily. Um, Let me take a few minutes here before we finish up with the rest of the podcast. I think this is a great opportunity to debrief a really important concept and I just appreciate so much Tom's transparency about what was working and what were his challenges and opportunities as he faced his experience in Hong Kong Disneyland. You know, it just seems intuitive at times that when we've got someone who does a great job in the work that they do, uh, whether it's somebody who's um, an artist or engineer, or whether it's somebody who's an attorney, or somebody who's a doctor, or somebody who's a postal worker. It doesn't matter the job. They do a great job. So what do we do? We promote them to be a manager. And for some reason, that seems to make sense. I mean, after all, they know how to do their job really, really well. Why don't we put them in charge of others who need to do their job really, really well? The truth of it is, is that is a somewhat different skill set than being really good at the craft or occupation that you have. And so many times, really fantastic people at the, who are so gifted, who have so many strengths in the work that they do, often find themselves overwhelmed or failing even at the job of trying to manage others. Now. There's a couple of ways to look at this. And one of those perspectives is, well, really managing others is a different skill set than being able to um, do a particular job really well. So let's bring in, it doesn't matter that they really know the business or they just bring people from the outside who really know how to manage others, not necessarily know how, know the business. And I find that to be a downfall of its own. Because no matter how good you may be at managing others, if you don't understand the business at heart, it, it, it just really causes you to suffer as a leader in terms of being able to really deliver at the end of the day. It's, you know, it's not just about, well, as I define leadership, I define it as, in, as, as two essential things. Being able to deliver results by effectively working with others. So it's great that you bring in somebody who effectively works with others, but if they don't know how to get the results, if they don't know how to do the job that's involved there, managing from the top doesn't necessarily create the right solution either. 
A better solution, I think, is that you need to start taking your gifted people, your your people who are really good at what they do, but start training them and developing them and identifying those who may have those natural gifts or innate gifts for more effectively working with others and managing others and leading others and and trying to get uh, deadlines accomplished or getting particular tasks resolved. So I, I highly recommend that what you need to do is gather your pool of talented people, but but then build them and develop them and help identify those who could be in a managerial level, not just because they do the job really well, but because they have this, this sense of understanding how to work with others and that they've received the development and feedback and uh, experience needed to, to do that, to truly manage. Now that said, let's go into um, the very last segment of my interview with Tom as he talks about um, one of the projects he's working on, very exciting, where he's trying to identify those Imagineers and others who have contributed to the Walt Disney Company, who have shared so much, but haven't necessarily been on the title page or haven't been in the, the stories that we so often hear associated with Imagineering. So let's go into that uh, final section. So now you're in the retirement phase, right? And can we talk a little bit to have two minutes to talk about your new book? I think so. That you've been researching on, <laughs> and right. um, and you're really, a year now. You're really doing the archaeology of of Imagineers who played a role between 1954 and yes. 1970, somewhere yeah. in that time frame. Right. Any um, any it's ahas? Any um, a lot of inside I mean, stories? Is something you could share with us to say? Boy, this is what I've learned from this. So, and it's not only the um, kind of rediscovered Imagineers that we didn't know about. It's the, it's the places, you know, where they did, where they made their magic that you may have seen photos of and wondered, well, you know, I know that internally it's like, I guess that's the studio or maybe it's the service area of Disneyland. I don't know. Or maybe, it, you know, maybe it's wet. I mean, I, when I started at wet, I forgot I didn't really even know that it had started at the studio. Not only that, but that it had also, you know, had four or five of its most important years, not at 1401, but at 800 Sonora, um, which is where the Haunted Mansion slash house um, was designed and Pirates of the Caribbean, initially Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, it's where Mark Davis drew, you know, first started drawing pirates. It's where New Orleans Square was designed. It's where everything that you saw so in Disneyland 65. Early, early and six, yeah, because yeah, they didn't move to 1401 until 1965. But even before 800 Sonora, like, where did they work out of? I mean, what was that office like? And I remember asking the question of um, executives back then, and and... I got an answer like, well, there was no really wet office. It was um, just scattered all over the studio in different places. And even go, that, well, you there can't had to quite be. figure out where that office was. <laughs> well, so I found where everything was. Oh, was it? Oh, oh, I, oh yeah. I've, where did it end up being? The bungalow? Well, or? there's, there's um, no, but the bungalow was one of the answers that was given to me along with the Zorro lot, the Zorro yeah. building, the mm-hmm. annex building, the railroad cars, the box cars, <laughs> the schoolhouse. I had every answer. <laughs> I had every answer. And 
and then I, I, you know, only just realized I kind of rewound the tape in my head and realized, you know, just about everyone that I asked wasn't there. They started, they joined the company in 61 or 62 or 63, oh, okay. so they knew it from Glendale on. Uh, I hadn't asked the right people. <laughs> Um, so I mean I do re I mean I do remember you know Hench or Claude you know would every now and then reference you know it all started at the studio we were at the studio at the very beginning but was there an office or not you know did they all it sit together like, or, yeah they were just doing it from their animators yeah so a few of them were doing it from the animators desk but there was very definitely an office and um, and there was a you know there was uh, a receptionist and there was there were secretaries and it was a wet office and hmm. um, you know I had a conference room a little model display area and then they did a lot of work of course in the machine shop which moved and the model shop which moved um, and um, that's where most of it you know and then things were built you know in the sound stages staff shop and sounds usually assembled on the sound stages for programming okay. purposes and um, built in the new there was an old machine shop there was a new machine shop uh, there was an old staff shop a new staff shop and a, you know so almost every function had at least two locations before so are you doing moved. one book or two books because you also talked about the archaeology of Disneyland and where was this yeah that would be another that? book that, that another be book a, yeah that would be another book if okay. I if I make it through this one so um, yeah, because there's so many little yeah. corners. This one I and corners of that. that I just uh, turned my attention to this one notion of the early days of Imagineering because there are some Imagineers who are still alive who go back as far as 1954 that we haven't heard of. Yeah, and um, or or have ha or had exposure to it, um, but even as you get closer to 1960, the number starts going up a little bit. Uh, there's four people alive who worked on the original Mr. Lincoln, the prototype Lincoln that was in the secret Lincoln room. There's four people alive that worked on that. They see Still it, alive. You, yeah, you see them in the National Geographic yeah, oh, they, pictures. Absolutely, and, 1963, yeah, yeah. Magical Worlds of Walt Disney, first thing. That is actually yeah. how I started my love of Walt right. Disney, was that so National Geographic. So two of those people are... Um, still alive, and Gurr worked on it too. Okay. And um, Jack Taylor worked on it as well. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Is, yeah. Is you know, as you get closer to 1960, suddenly you might be talking about a couple dozen people, or more maybe even that are still around. But going back to 54, there's at least three, and there might be more. You know. Because uh, I, I as I discover these names, I haven't been immediately trying to track them down yet I'm trying to figure out what the real list because they did move animators into the office as Sleeping Beauty production went up I'm really glad you're doing this uh, Bob Iger in his new book talks about I think he said 100,000 workers on Shanghai Disney by the time it opened clearly wasn't any 100,000 back no. in those early days no. but it wasn't just you know, Marv and Mark and no. Claude and wasn't and, even Mark and because you know, Mark didn't yeah, Mark start till '62. Yeah, but it, you know, there, there's certainly were important individuals yeah. who we've honored, and recognized, right. but there were so many others who oh, oh yeah, who are lost that, to the ages. Right. And so that so will be that will be them. the real surprise is that you know some of them are truly forgotten, lost. They don't show up in any search one way or another. Directory. But um, some of them are showing up as 
important art directors, film designers, yeah. um, television, worked in TV. You know, so there's quite a few Emmys and Oscars in this bunch. Um, people people who, borrowed from other studios. Uh, well, so what happened in fifty in the early fifties is the studio started downsizing their art departments, or in some cases closing them. So the original WED staff of sketch artists, draftsmen, designers, and art directors all came from film. There's a couple architects that are just kind of basic architects yeah. in the mix, but they're mostly from film, and they're at some of them are at the end of their career. Some of them, you know, are in their just 60s. Just looking for their last piece. And they were, you know, some of them, at least four of them worked on Wizard of Oz in varying roles. And, um, and a couple were sort of high up art directors, too, that worked for Cedric Gibbons, who was like the first yeah. big, big, big art director. Then there's another group that are kind of in the middle, right? And then there's another group who are young draftsmen like I was when I started and they're going to have a big film career later. Wow. And and not necessarily associated with Disney. So we got another conversation <laughs> to go yeah. when your book comes out and um, thank not you. to mention thank the two or three women uh, draftsmen and engineers that were in there that and two more women in the model shop. Good, good for you to yeah. know this. Thank you for doing the research and the, and the heavy lifting to find those people because I think those are important chapters that need to be filled in. I do too. It's, I'm, I didn't know the number would be as high as it was. You know, And actually it's going to be pretty... Now it's always hard to get the construction number. So when Bob Iger says 100,000 for Shanghai, a lot of that are you know, um, construction contractors. contractors in the field. But from a design standpoint, how many people does it take to design a park like Disneyland? We'll have a number because the engineering firm, the two engineering firms, um, have a finite number of people. And the, the wet office, I mean, you can, you can pinpoint it because the wonderful Disney archives um, still has the phone directories from back then. And the phone directories were updated every couple months. So you can actually chart kind of out when it peaks, it goes and yeah, and it peaks around 100 on the Disney staff, around 100. But then you had two or three other outside, not very many. You had you had Wheeler and Gray and um, Sam Hamill and a couple of these other aero development. And, yeah, sure. Um, but not many more than that. And so you can actually pinpoint the number of, I think you can, you know, approximate very closely the number of people, the number of drawings it took to build Disneyland. The wow. drawings still exist, wow. which is a really great thing. Yeah. I've been going through the drawings to see who drew each drawing. And so I'll have kind of a record of who were the draftsmen behind the Merlin's magic shop. Who, you know, here's another kind of unknown story is that the castle at Disneyland is, you know, often attributed to Herb Ryman, but he did, you know, an initial painting that was really kind of based on Marvin Davis's um, earlier work, but mm -hmm. then it was who was the one who really pulled it all together, and it was a guy named Roland Hill, who you probably haven't heard of. I've heard that name, but I have no association yeah. with anything he did. Yeah, he was an, another one of these art directors that just you know went back to the '30s, and he, he was just you know a reliable old hand at doing kind of medieval um, buildings and castles. I mean, it's even kind of 
specified, I think, on one document that... Did um, he help provide that troubadour look, or was it... Um, he or what, uh, you went back. He to may have been. He may have been the one that like added the chapel to off to the side of the Disneyland okay. castle because I don't think it had that until he came on board. He does most of the uh, working drawings. You know the construction no drawings. Wow. Um, he does all the key ones. Let me put it that way. And then there's three or four other uh, people working on that. But he's definitely the lead on the castle and gave it its final form. Um, and so some of the other buildings kind of seem like they have that also that kind of person who um, so Bill Martin was kind of overall in Fantasyland but he wasn't you know on the board yeah um, drawing all those things so um, you know I've got the names of the guys now who did my favorite buildings at Disneyland and the question does come up like so but who you know did Bill Martin do a rough tissue like a rough or did he just say we've got this plan, this floor plan, come up with a facade for it? Rough and tissue means yeah means that there were no computer graphics right. involved at this time. No, <laughs> just, no and that's just how I very did. light paper that you and, kept laying on top of each other. And while they existed in, at Disneyland <laughs> Paris time, I designed the castle on tissue paper. That was my Photoshop. But not but not the bathroom guy. The, the kind <laughs> you had to layer. It's, right. That's a whole other guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, has different names: bumwad, onion skin. Onions get, yeah. 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 So there'll hey, be all sorts of stories like that. We look forward to those stories. And thank you. Thank You're you welcome. for being very generous with your time and really appreciate it. Always glad to do it. Here. It's Always just glad great. to do it. Thank you so much. So Tom Morris mentions uh, the work of Roland E. Hill, um, an individual that a lot of people don't know about him. I'm going to include a couple of links to some things about him. Uh, quite interesting because he was actually a pilot in World War One, who apparently crashed his plane and and then spent the rest of the war driving others around and in the process of driving others around he sketched a lot of the castles that he saw both in France and in Germany including the Neuschwanstein Castle which in Bavaria which is kind of the inspiration for Sleeping Beauty Castle in fact, in, in October of 1919, <clears throat> he met up with Walt Disney, who was in France as a, as a driver for the uh, Red Cross. Um, and there they formed a friendship. Over the years, um, Walt liked uh, Roland's work. And in time, um, Walt invited him to be involved uh, with the animation department uh, in the development of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And... Uh, later on in Fantasia and Sleeping Beauty and ultimately uh, invited Roland to help with the design of Disneyland Castle in, in Anaheim. I, I think this is just a, a great little story and I have a couple little um, little uh, links to that. So please catch that. If you haven't been to Sleeping Beauty Castle uh, recently at Disneyland, um, and even if you have, you might not have noticed that there's this wonderful little pine tree that's planted out in front of uh, the castle. Uh, on it lies a plaque that says, Genus Artisticus Species Raimanus. It's, it's kind of a little homage to Herb Ryman, who did the original conception of Sleeping Beauty Castle when he laid out the entire look of Disneyland. I, I, if you recall, there's a story where Roy Disney 
needed to go to New York to secure financing for Disneyland, or well, in particular, to meet with the networks to get them to sign up as a sponsor for Disneyland. And they ne needed to show what this thing was going to look like. So Herb was, uh, was uh, asked by Walt to work through the weekend, and he was very reluctant to do so, but only agreed if Walt would stay beside him to help him out through it. And, and the result was the initial drawing of Disneyland. And it's a wonderful thing. And in there you see Sleeping Beauty Castle, although the gates of the castle are in the same place um, and a drawbridge is there, but the actual castle itself is actually set a little further back in that original design. But it's always played um, kind of a, a reference to the Neuschwanstein, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, uh, Neuschwanstein Castle, the one you see in Soren. Uh, when you attend that attraction. At any rate, I like that little reference to Herb Ryman. I just would love to see a little more references to other artists who have contributed to the genius of all the things that we enjoy under the Walt Disney umbrella. And and why not? Why not have a few more trees out there with uh, different <laughs> uh, scientific names on it, recognizing different artists? Um, just as in gravestones. In fact, there was a, a new gravestone put uh, not too long ago out at the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland, which references a uh, grandfather of John Frost, who does uh, the Disney blog, disneyblog.com. And uh, again, it's just another opportunity to recognize more people who really do a great job for your organization. So that brings us to what we refer to in our Disney at Work podcast as souvenirs for your organization. Looking at these stories from Hong Kong and from the work that Tom is presently doing, ask yourself these questions. Is someone um, who happens to do their job really well the right fit person for managing others in their role? And how can you identify talented people in their occupation who with support could eventually take over positional leadership opportunities. Referencing the work of others, such as uh, our reference to um, the work of Roland, ask yourself this question, how are you capturing your heritage and those who have contributed to the organization? How are you recognizing the work of others? especially those who often don't receive the credit. Well, this has been another Disney at Work podcast, and we are so grateful that you have taken the time to join us. This is among all the, I mean, we have Disney at Play podcast where we talk about our love and fandom for all things Disney, and I hope you enjoy those podcasts as well. But Disney at Work podcasts are unique because here we, we emphasize ideas that really you could take back to your own organization. Do you have an organization that you're a part of? Are you in a position where you could be better or lead the organization better in terms of managing others, in terms of improving the customer service, the leadership, the engagement of your employees? Come talk to us because that's what we do. We work with organizations like yours to help them on their journey to being great. We don't adopt the ideas of Disney, we adapt them. 
We adapt the principles, the stories, the ideas, the concepts back to your organization so that you can make them yours and you can take uh, those ideas to the next level. And so reach out to us, whether it is a seminar, maybe you want uh, me to come and talk, uh, give a keynote to your uh, upcoming conference or seminar. Maybe you want to do an entire workshop where we come and really get into the trench with your organization and talk to managers or leaders or frontline about how we can improve things. Or, hey, come attend one of our open enrollment programs that we have. We just got through doing one at Walt Disney World just two weeks ago, where we had a team of, well, frankly, IT managers, which you wouldn't think, what would IT managers get out of going down the streets of Epcot and Animal Kingdom? But we had an amazing four-day experience, really looking at ideas around how to improve their organizations. One of the best programs I've ever had the privilege of doing. And, and we can do the same thing for yours. Whether you want to join one of our open enrollment uh, programs coming up, or whether you want to uh, maybe have your own team come out to Disneyland, Walt Disney World, even so the parks internationally, we can go to Hong Kong and take the time to really look at best practices to help you improve your organization. So for, feel free to reach out, contact us, give us a call because we'd really love to help your organization. As we say in all of our podcasts, referencing the story of Sinbad at Tokyo Disney Sea, whether work or play, we hope that you, in your work and in your daily enjoyments, Follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day.